Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy to assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. The Guardian. Violence and discrimination against women happen at multiple levels in multiple places. It happens on the field. It happens in shop floors and factories. It happens in your own house. It happens in the bedroom. Despite being one of the lucky young Indian women who grew up in a home that favoured gender equality, Seema Nair always knew that India was far behind when it comes to human rights for women. The first two years of writing, I realized that I, I, as much as I enjoy writing and talking to people and breaking stories, I was so much interested in the doing part of it. Um, it just didn't sit well with me that all I did was write. I wanted to sort of get into the doing part. So she set about trying to empower them. I see women coming out, speaking up, taking their place in the workforce, taking their place in the polity. I feel like there's a renewed conversation on sexuality and I hope that there is space to continue that conversation and expand it across not just urban but rural India. This is Small Changes, a podcast about how sometimes the seemingly smallest change can have the biggest impact. This week, I'm talking to Seema Nair, the South Asia Programme Officer at the Fund for Global Human Rights. I'm Lucy Lamble. Tell us about Bangalore. What's it like as a place to live in? I I visited once and it was really dynamic. So when I was growing up, it was known as the pensioner's paradise and the city with the most amount of parks. And so it was really very, a very nice, calm place to grow up. And then the IT boom happened. And right now it's sort of known on Twitter circles as, as a traffic nightmare. It takes forever for people to get from place to place. And so I think the city is really struggling to sort of keep up with the amount of migration back into the city, the growing sectors, um, the IT crowd, the industry, and governance is basically trying to catch up with industry and growth in that way. And you're now working for a women's rights organisation, a human rights organisation, but particularly focusing on working with grassroots organizations? Yes. I think the best way to sort of describe the Fund for Global Human Rights would be that it is somewhere, uh, it's it's somewhat a mix between an angel investor and a talent scout agency. Um, We've been working in India for more than 14 years, and we work with about 30 groups in India and support uh, these organizations. 
Um, and women's, uh, the way that we sort of uh, look at the issue of women's rights is two, is two ways. One, we support exclusively women-led organizations. And for organizations that are not women-led or not focused particularly on women's rights, say, for example, labor rights, we ask the questions that are related to women. And so it's, in one sense, it's one of the most important lenses that we use to understand and respond to the work. And what's it like for a woman growing up in Bangalore? I must say, I, so I'm one of three uh, girls in my family. Um, my father was the only male person, so I didn't really understand gender dynamics or sort of face any, I, I never felt unequal or discriminated against growing up. Uh, I just took a lot of things for granted because my family was, my parents let all the three of us, all the three girls make the decisions that we wanted to in terms of where we wanted to study, what we wanted to study, who we wanted to marry, what kind of lifestyles we wanted to leave. So it was only in college, I think, that I started to sort of recognize that there was a pushback element. And I struggled to find the words and the language. And I think coming into the human rights world gave me that opportunity to find my language, to find the way that I can actually describe what the difference of the experience of the world is living in India. And for that, I'm extremely grateful. But probably your family experience isn't typical, obviously, of everyone. There's quite a range of experience going on. Yeah. For me, the fundamental sort of learning that I try to sort of incorporate into my language, into my practice um, of work every day is to be able to recognize that when I came into this world, I sort of like came in with a whole bunch of privilege, my class privilege, my caste privilege. And I recognize that the experience of gender and of being a woman or a girl in India is actually determined not just about being a woman, but really about where you are in this ladder of class and where you are in the ladder of caste. And to bring my privilege back into the work that I do has made me understand, Not first of all, sort of be very honest and forthright that the experience is not the same for everyone. And to be empathetic and understanding and really cognizant of the privilege uh, when I bring it back to work. How early in your life did you know you wanted to work in human rights? Actually, I grew up wanting to be a journalist. So like right now, being in the Guardian office is a bit like feeling like I'm a kid in a toy store. And I was a journalist. I was trained in mass communication and journalism. I worked in newspapers for the first two years of my life, and I love writing. Um, it's be become harder as the years go by, I can't uh, have to admit that. But the first two years of writing, I realized that I, 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 as much as I enjoy writing and talking to people and breaking stories, I was so much interested in the doing part of it. Um, it just didn't sit well with me that all I did was write. I wanted to sort of get into the doing part, which is where then I took this uh, decision that I would actually move from journalism to at that point, it was not even human rights. So I went and worked in a, um, worked in a village uh, for about four years. The village is about three hours from Bangalore, three to four hours from Bangalore, and um, worked with the community there to set up the first community radio station in India. What was that like? It was really fun. It was really fun. It, and it, at that point, India did not have a community radio station, uh, community radio legislation. So it was sort of uh, creating an example, like demonstrating by doing. And so we had to sort of have this absurd way of like having the radio attached to a cable because we couldn't use the airwaves. So it meant climbing stairs, pulling cable, getting like getting women and girls and boys into like studios like this and having live shows and getting people to talk about what's topical and like sharing information. So it was really fun. And what did the villagers want to talk about? 
um, there was practical stuff like what what is the rate of uh, tomato this week in the market and how can we source that information. So we would call the closer town, the markets and sort of relay that information back for women, especially who did not who were either illiterate or did not have the time to read newspapers. We'd have a show that actually summarized what the, that day's news was. Uh, from four different Kannada newspapers. Um, and it was in two languages because that community spoke in Kannada and in Telugu. And um, half of the show was re- dedicated to music. From this community radio project, which sounds great fun, you then went to work for EVOS? No, I was working with the UN for a bit, for, for UNESCO, for uh, almost two years. We uh, did a community media and ICT project across South Asia. And that was really good because I got to work in six other countries in South Asia. And we did a whole, um, and the emphasis of the project was sort of learning uh, ethnographic research, so to, sort of doing research to understand how communication and information systems work in different communities and um, enabling sort of learning between the countries. So my f- most favorite example of this work was that um, in the tea gardens in Sri Lanka, because the tea gardens are so far away and isolated from each other, we had, um, we had set up a community radio station and a computer center with a portable sort of um, antenna system. And we drive the tuk-tuk into the, radio st- into the tea gardens, do live broadcasting, and also then teach the community about the internet and uh, internet browsing shows and those kind of things and then relay it back. So it was one way of actually establishing participatory radio. So at what point did you move over to human rights work? Um, it happened uh, when I joined HIVOS. Um, and I, I joined HIVOS as the gender and uh, program officer for gender and ICD and media. And Can we just explain what HIVOS is? HIVOS is um, a Dutch international NGO, largely at that time funded by the Dutch government, and uh, was already working in India, I think in total worked in India for about 18 years, so had huge amounts of depth and experience in working in India. And when I joined HIVOS, actually, I hadn't, I didn't have any of these this gender language in my head. Um, and suddenly I was thrown to the sort of deep end and having to have like conversations with leading feminists and talking about issues that I was not exposed to. And that was a steep, steep learning curve. But it, it just brought me to a place where I was like, this is what it feels like. This is where I was always supposed to be. And that it felt like that at the time. After the break, we'll hear about how incidences of extreme violence towards women in India have mobilised women there to fight against oppression. I asked women especially the question, is this new or did this always happen and was it that we never spoke about it? And most of the time, people, especially women, tell me that this always happened and nobody spoke about it. We'll be right back. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. 
So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Here at The Guardian, we love podcasts. Not only do we make dozens of award winners ourselves, but we also write about our favourite podcasts from around the world too. Every week, our column, Hear, Hear, that's here as in hearing and here as in where, comes out filled with recommendations from you, our listeners. We sift through them all to find the hidden gems that the podcasting world has to offer. These podcasts are often small yet mighty productions, which you probably wouldn't find highlighted on your usual podcatchers. So, if you're looking for your next podcast or have one that you want to share with the world, sign up for our weekly Hear Hear newsletter at theguardian.com forward slash podmail and send us an email at podcasts at theguardian.com. Hello and welcome to NewsClick. Following the gang rape of a young woman in New Delhi on December 16, 2012, the Government of India constituted the Justice Verma Commission with a mandate to examine the possibility of amendment to India's criminal laws and to provide for quicker trial and enhanced punishment for offences of a sexual assault. The three-member committee... Welcome back to Small Changes. I'm Lucy Lamble. Before the break, we heard from Seema Nair about her work at the Fund for Global Human Rights. The report has been hailed by a large number of commentators as a landmark for the feminist movement in India and as a comprehensive and long-awaited indictment of governance systems in our country that have failed to apply the constitutional principles to the cause of gender justice and equality. On the other hand, the report... India is obviously such a rich and varied culture and so many high points in, in education and culture. But there have been these horrible infamous moments that really shock the world of, of, of cases like the, the Delhi rape in 2012 and so on. How have people fought back in communities? So the Delhi rape case was really pivotal to India. In a way, I don't think any one of us working in the human rights sector saw that happening. We didn't think that there would be so many people on the streets, men and boys and girls. Like that was shocking, right? That men and boys were actually coming on streets and fighting on this issue. And um, that was a huge turning point because the pushback that sort of citizens made and, you know, really, like, um, pushed the government to respond. The one good thing that the parliament did at that time was to sort of appoint Justice Verma to actually, um, uh, in this commission, to relook at all the laws. And when I looked at all the people that he had consulted in those three, uh, three months that he was uh, sort of preparing to proposed new legislation, I realized that it was probably the first time in India that people had a chance to uh, contribute in a way that to the conversation on violence and especially related to sexual assault, rape and violence in a way that hadn't happened before because uh, he consulted sex workers, he consulted caste-based groups, he consulted trade unions. Generally, the notion is that you equate violence with domestic violence or you equate violence with rape and like that is that is the sort of linear understanding. But violence and discrimination against women happen at multiple levels in multiple places. It happens on the field. It happens in shop floors and factories. It happens in your own house. It happens in the bedroom. It happens in uh, because of the caste that you come from. So to enable all those multiple complex layers now to come back 
into the discussion was, I think, the best part of the out- the outcome of the uh, Delhi rape incident. So quality legal work went on around that. What has it meant practically for, for people fighting cases of injustice? What I will tell you for sure, I'm, I, I know that many people really struggle with the number of cases, right? Because all of this is going on and it doesn't, there, there isn't a decrease in the number of cases that are being reported. And I personally feel that's a good thing because I ask women especially the question, is this new or did this always happen? And was it that we never spoke about it? And most of the time, people, especially women, tell me that this always happened and nobody spoke about it. And now we're seeing this upsurge in the number of cases is because women have finally decided that keeping quiet is not an option. And speaking out is the first step towards this. So in that sense, women all over across India, women, girls, children are speaking out. There is no doubt about that. Um, now, how much of the system is how much the system is able to respond, and how much the system is able to sort of really um, ensure justice is another question. Um, there have been changes in the law. There have been remarkable changes in the law that we have to appreciate and you know appreciate the Indian government's efforts in that. But at the same time, the problem with law and the way that we understand law is law is so related to also mindsets. It is the mindset of the police. Uh, Thanidar or the you know the constable who is sort of writing your first information report FIR or the judge who is sitting in the court and listening where is his mindset what is his understanding of gender what is his understanding of the person's experience the second bit of work I think that we're really investing in is to be able to understand uh, is to sort of move the conversation from a survivor victim lens to an empowered lens so Right now, uh, we are supporting a whole bunch of work in India and uh, to the formation of a national network of rape survivors. And the reason that we're doing this is we are understanding that the, as much as there is a role for NGOs and civil society organizations, there is nothing more powerful than a survivor to be able to then narrate her experience of the systems and the and the loopholes to the government and say, this is why this doesn't work and this is why this needs to change. And for a survivor to be able to do that, it changes her own self-perception, right? Like of me of being a victim of violence or rape and a survivor of violence. And right now, I am not just a victim or survivor. I have now an experience that makes me a leader capable of representing the other women who are going through this. Another area you've worked on with interesting outcomes has been working on behalf and with women who are single. Yeah, this is really fun. This is a really fun part of the work. Um, this started about 14 years back in, in the state of Rajasthan. And Rajasthan is a is a difficult state to work in and live in as a woman. And typically in uh, many parts of India, um, your identity is so associated with the marriage and the husband. And once you lose, once you become single, whether you're widowed or you're deserted or um, you're unmarried, um, there is a loss of identity. And about 14, 15 years back, about 250 women had gotten together to discuss this and then decided to start a a membership-based organization called the Ekal Nari Shakti Sangatan, which loosely means Association of Women Alone. That organization from being 250 women-led now is about 120,000 women across six states. And that's a huge achievement. And and the triumphs are so significant and 
it might appear small but really significant. So, for example, when after you lose um, your husband, in many parts of India, you're not supposed to wear color. Like, and you're sort of like expected to sort of uh, fade into oblivion in one sense. So you can't participate as actively in um, social occasions or marriages. Uh, you aren't encouraged to sort of wear bangles or bindi or all the things that you know women want to wear right and their first challenge and their first triumph in, the, in their own words was that when they started to actually defy social norms and start wearing bright pink bright red colors saris and wear bangles and wear bindi because their point was that we have lost a husband but we have not lost ourselves and we still have a life and we still have an identity and we want to claim it and every year when I spend time with them, I just realize that the, the, they've gone from 250 to not just just grown in number and volume, but also the kind of successes that they have had. They've increased pension substantially for women across the states that they work in. Uh, they have made sure that children of uh, widowed women have access to free institutions and school. They have increased their chances in livelihood. Um, um, chances in buying assets to build their own houses. And all of this comes from a sense of sisterhood and solidarity that is so visible and palpable when you spend time with them. And I'm so happy to be part of that. There are occasions, obviously, when women find themselves in the minority. You, you wrote a very interesting story about a, a young woman called Kavya, who was the only woman in the flower uh, wholesale market. Tell us about her. Yeah, Kavya was actually, she, she led the most sheltered life for the first 20, 25 years. She'd never even, apparently, she didn't know the way from her house to the bus stand. That's how sheltered she was. And then she was thrown into the deep end because her husband deserted her and she had to sort of... Uh, look out for both her children. And that's that's when she decided she would go back to the market and claim the business that her husband run. And that market in Bangalore, the Kyarpuram market, is uh, really male-dominated in, in the way that it's spatially organized as well as where women sit and the spaces that they occupy. And how, she's, how she claimed her identity for me was fascinating because her own story, she doesn't tell her own story with like, look at me and I have claimed this. For her, it's more about this was the most important thing to do for me to actually lead a life of dignity. So what if my husband left me? I now am a mother and I had to set an example for my kids and give them the best possible education and I would take everything that uh, that is needed to do it, which meant that if I had to claim access and sit and sell flowers in the market in a place that other women have not sold before, I will do it. And the way that she negotiated spaces and the way that she negotiated power, I think, was for me. And like we generally talk about how women feel empowered, right? But it's so much about negotiating power in spaces. And it's never black and white. That's what I've learned from all the experiences. Because in there, in the process of negotiating power, are strong emotions of love, strong emotions of desire, strong emotions of feeling obligated to certain roles and responsibilities that a woman has to take up. Um, and it's all about the, the, the choices that the woman makes that I feel is, is, the, is where we have to pay attention to. It's great to hear such interesting work going on and so many uh, really fascinating individuals who found their way through the system. There are clearly still big challenges for, for society. Where do you see India in five, ten years' time?
I see women coming out, speaking up, taking their place in the workforce, taking their place in the polity. I feel like there's a renewed conversation on sexuality and I hope that there is space to continue that conversation and expand it across not just urban but rural India. Communities and organizations have been fighting to keep a space open and alive on LGBTI issues, sexual minority issues and I hope that remains and at some point in time in the next five years that we get rid of that horrendous 377 law that uh, criminalizes homosexuality. There is a younger level, a next generation of leadership that is able to articulate the complexity and the intersections of the identities that we as women experience. What keeps you going? Work, I think, by far. Like it's the be- it's it's the one thing that I wake up to every morning, and I um, I'm so inspired by the kind of people. I get to meet and talk to and support as an organization. And the Fund for Global Human Rights is, is for me, like the best place to work in because it, it embodies so many of the things that I personally believe in because I think change is not a linear process. It's a long one. It's a messy one. And the fact that the fund is able to support groups over a long period of time and to sort of give unrestricted financial support to let activists and organizations make the most appropriate choices on how to spend their resources and choose the battles that they want to fight every day, for me, is the most important contribution to the work. And um, I've seen the value of this, the sort of long-term core support in actually being able to build institutions that are stable, that are community-driven, but also have the dynamism to respond to everyday challenges. If you liked this episode, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Even better, leave us a review and tell us about it. And join the discussion on Twitter. We're at Guardian Podcasts. If you want to get in touch, you can tweet us there or email us at podcasts at theguardian.com. Small Changes is produced by Gabriella Jones, Rowan Slaney and Danielle Stevens. I'm Lucy Lamble. Thanks for listening. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts. Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. A third of students are less than happy about their university choice. New research by EY has revealed... The findings suggest that a digital rethink is essential to meet the expectations of students and staff. Universities can address this by putting the needs of the people they serve at the heart of their digital strategies. Learn more about the future of human-centered higher education at theguardian.com forward slash transforming higher education. This message was paid for by EY.